This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Did you ever have suspicions of him when he was around your family? Never an inkling. All these years on, the pain remains fresh for Christine Jessup's mom, Janet. But it is different now, after a knock at the door by detectives that she'd long waited for. It's over now. The end has come. And we have, had, we have now some closure. And that was very, very important to get. And get the right closure. Amid the trauma of it all, she'd waited, wondered, starting back in 1984, looking for her nine-year-old. If I do see something, I stop and look. By the 30th anniversary of Christine's death, hope of finding the killer was fading. It would mean really an end, a complete, total end. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of TNTC Shorts. This is a newer format of True North True Crime we are using to bring awareness to cases that are making their way through the court systems along with updates on cases we've covered in previous episodes and recent missing persons cases that might not quite have enough information to make up a full episode. As you all know, we are an independent self-funded podcast. However, we do take donations to the podcast. If you would like to donate, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. It can be a one-time donation, or if you want to become an honorary producer of the podcast, you can choose the $5 a month option. If you can't donate, but you want to help out the podcast, please write us a five-star review on Apple, or tell a friend about True North True Crime. We appreciate all of you for listening and giving us a platform in order to tell these incredibly important stories. So tonight we're going to be talking about the murder of Christine Jessup. We put this episode together using publicly available court documents and news articles. This is actually a historic Canadian case that has garnered a lot of attention over the past 35 years. There are many twists and turns in this case, but it finally came to a conclusion in October of 2020. The conclusion of this case is actually quite shocking and led Canadian national news headlines for days. So we want to take this time to break down the details of this story for you. We are talking about the murder of Christine Jessup, a nine-year-old girl whose decomposing body was found in a farmer's field in 1984. This case takes place in what was known as the village of Queensville, Ontario, which is about an hour outside of Toronto. In the 80s, this area would have been quite rural. Christine Jessup was born on November 29, 1974, and she lived with her mom and her dad and her older brother. The family lived in an area of Queensville that had a real neighborhood kind of feel with tree-lined streets and houses that were quite close to one another. The neighbors all seemed to know each other quite well. Christine Jessup was well-known to many in the community. She was a healthy, happy nine-year-old with a big smile and bright blue eyes. She liked baseball and riding her bike, and she loved her pet beagle named Freckles. 
so much so that she actually dreamed of growing up to be a veterinarian. Christine was a little shy and rather small for her age as she weighed only 40 pounds. The 3rd of October, 1984, was a school day. Her mom and brother had gone to the jail that day to visit Christine's father. She really wanted to go and had apparently got upset when her mom told her she couldn't. So her brother and mom were not home when Christine was let off the school bus outside her home at about 3.45 p.m. Christine then went to a nearby store to buy some bubble gum. At about 4 p.m., she was seen walking with her bicycle in the direction of her home. This was the last time she was seen alive by any witnesses. At about 4.40 p.m., Christine's mother and brother returned to the Jessup home. Christine's mother found her bicycle in the shed and her school bag in the pantry, but she could not find Christine. She would later testify that Christine had been instructed to never go anywhere with a stranger and that she always obeyed those instructions. Her mother continued to look for her around the house and then thought she might be playing at a friend's house, although it was unusual for Christine to do this without leaving a note. Eventually, at 7 p.m., she phoned the police. Searches to find Christine would be unsuccessful. Tragically, on December 31, 1984, Christine Jessup's remains were found in a grassy field in Brock Township in the Durham region. Her body was located about 20 feet from the laneway where it could not be seen from the road. The location was some 51 kilometers from the Jessup home. Some loose buttons from her blouse, her shoes, and her pants were found on the ground close to her body. Her underpants were found in the grass near her right foot. Her blouse, turtleneck, sweater, and sweatshirt were pulled up over her skull. Her legs were in an outstretched position. Subsequent examination of her underpants revealed blood and semen in the inner surface of her underwear. There were also five cutting injuries to the chest made by a weapon with a very sharp cutting edge. Three of these were inflicted from the back and two from the front. The pathologist concluded that Christine Jessup's death was caused by multiple stab wounds to her body. Now, because of where Christine's body was found, the case was handed over to the very inexperienced Durham Police Department. As the investigation floundered, the police became more aggressive. They pressed the Jessup family for a name of anyone who could have done this crime. Eventually, on February 14th, 1985, Durham police became interested in Guy Paul Morin, a neighbor of the Jessups. Christine's mother had told police he was a weird type guy. Morin lived with his parents right next door to the Jessups. The 24-year-old worked as a furniture sander and played clarinet in a community band. The police and community members didn't really have a favorable view of the Morin family. The Morin family was reclusive, at times combative, and their home was surrounded with junk and work materials. In addition, Morin did not join the search for Christine, and he didn't attend the funeral. Guy Paul Morin was just a kind of independent soul who loved beekeeping and playing music. He didn't fit into the mold of most people. He was arrested on April 22, 1985, as he drove to his community band practice. He was denied bail and spent 10 months in jail awaiting trial on the charge of first-degree murder. His life would never be the same again. Morin would actually have a pretty solid alibi. 
However, the Durham police would encourage the Jessup family to change their timeline of events, thus nullifying Morin's alibi. In January 1986, his murder trial began inside a London, Ontario courtroom. It was a case that the defense maintained was full of holes. A police officer was charged after it was discovered he had switched a cigarette butt found at the murder scene. There was also testimony from a known liar who told the court that he heard a jailhouse confession. The jailhouse informant claims that Morin began screaming in the middle of the night and confessed to the crime. This was a ridiculous lie. One month later, almost a year after his arrest, Morin was acquitted. In June 1987, the Ontario Supreme Court ordered a new trial, which began again in November 1991. The second trial ran for nine months in 1992. At the time, it was the longest murder trial in Canadian history. This trial cost taxpayers approximately $11 million. The jury deliberated for eight days and finally reached a first-degree murder conviction. Morn was sentenced to life in prison. Improvements in DNA testing led to a new DNA test in January of 1995, which excluded Morin as the murderer. Morin was acquitted on January 23, 1995 in response to the new DNA evidence that all the parties had agreed were accurate. Morin would state, I'm just in heaven. I'm happy. I'm free. That's how I feel. Free. Morin's father said, I think there's a lot of wrongs that have to be righted. Christine Jessup's brother, Ken, who was 14 years old at the time of his sister's disappearance, broke down in court and apologized outside of the courtroom for all that was said about Guy Paul Morin. He would state, Every time you see them, the Crown or the police, they turn and they tell you that this is the man. He's going down this time. And after 10 years of hearing that, Ken said he didn't know what else to think. He, he felt brainwashed. He would go on to say, now I have to sit back and realize, and really let it sink in, that Morin is not the one who sexually assaulted her. That's what this evidence proves. He's now a free man. I hope he sues the ass off of them. Morin's wrongful conviction was the subject of a judicial inquiry that proved Morin's case had evidence of police and prosecutorial misconduct. Wiretap and interrogation tapes were lost or erased and potentially vindicating evidence was misplaced or tainted. Evidence was also found of misrepresentation of forensic evidence by the Ontario Centre of Forensic Sciences. The Ontario government apologized to Morin for his prosecution and paid him $1.25 million in compensation. At some point, the Toronto police took over this case, and for decades they would bring out the 400 boxes of evidence and go over the case piece by piece. One of the Toronto investigators, Detective Sergeant Steve Smith, became inspired after seeing a presentation on how the Golden State Killer was identified using DNA websites like 23andMe. They were able to narrow down the possible killer from 30,000 people to just two, two brothers with the last name Hoover. But there was a problem. One of them had died by suicide. The police considered exhuming the man's body, but realized that the Center for Forensic Sciences might have stored his blood following his suicide. Law enforcement obtained a warrant to access those blood vials and compared them with the sample left by Christine Jessup's killer. 
On October 15, 2020, nearly 36 years after Christine Jessup was sexually assaulted and killed, Toronto police identified the man they say is responsible for her murder. Through DNA evidence, police announced semen found on Jessup's underwear was matched to a Toronto resident named Calvin Hoover, who was 28 at the time he killed Christine. However, Hoover died by suicide in 2015. So who was Calvin Hoover? Police said that Calvin Hoover was never considered a suspect in the case, but did come up as a person of interest due to the fact that he and his wife had a neighbor-acquaintance relationship with the Jessup family. Christine's mom said that she remembers Hoover as a quiet chap who often socialized with her husband. Christine's brother said that Hoover had a close enough relationship with the family that he helped with the initial search for his sister back in 1984 and then attended a wake at their house following the funeral. He also believed that Calvin Hoover would have known that Ken and his mother were visiting his father in jail on the day of Christine's disappearance. Ken Jessup, Christine's brother, would state that he saw his opportunity and his chance and he took it. There was nothing random about this. I always said it was somebody that knew my father was in jail and used the pickup line of, I will take you to see your father. I'm sure he was at the house waiting when Christine got back from the store. In fact, in 1984, Christine's father worked with Calvin Hoover and his wife, Heather Hoover, at Eastern Independent Telecom. Heather Hoover actually used to babysit Christine. In 1984, police were told that a silver Datsun may have been used in the kidnapping of Christine. Through witness statements, they have since learned that Hoover drove a silver 1980 Pontiac Phoenix, a compact vehicle that resembles the Datsun. Police say following Moran's acquittal, there's evidence showing Hoover attempted to go off the radar. He also started drinking more, frequenting pubs and bars near his home, gambling, and using cocaine. The year after Moran's exoneration, in April 1996, Hoover was arrested for drunk driving in Ajax. By December, he'd pleaded guilty, received an $800 fine, and a one-year driving ban, according to court documents. In 1997, Calvin Hoover and Heather divorced after spending more than a decade together. Their children remained with her. Hoover remarried in 2003, but his life remained turbulent. In fact, in 2009, his second wife died of natural causes. By 2010, Hoover had had several car accidents. He also began to tell friends and family about ongoing suicidal ideation. In 2015, while sitting in his car alone in the garage of his Port Hope home, Calvin Hoover ended his own life. In the aftermath of these recent revelations, the Jessup family are not just re-victimized, but they also feel betrayed. Calvin Hoover was their neighbor. He worked with their father. His wife babysat Christine. He was someone that they trusted. They do feel now, though, that Christine can rest. They feel that the pieces have finally fallen into place. Christine's brother Ken would state, I would have liked to see Hoover face his crime, but I think he has already faced it, and I'm sure it is really hot where he is right now, and I hope he enjoys the long stay. Rotten hell, you bastard. Police say they are still actively working on the Jessup case, despite the significant break. So far, there are no indicators that Calvin Hoover was involved in any other violent crimes. There are also no indications that Heather Hoover knew anything about the crime. This brings us to the end of another episode of TNTC Shorts. We will be back next week with another full episode of True North True Crime. If you want to help out our podcast, please donate to our donation page at buymeacoffee.com slash TNTCpod. 
Follow us on social media at TNTCPod on either Instagram or Twitter, or hit subscribe on your choice of podcast platform. Our producers on the podcast are Amy's Book Reviews, Alberta Bly, Cindy McDee, Giraffe 3000, Alyssa Santos, Anastasia, Ariel Elliott, Melanie E., Kelly Donahue, and Carolyn Moore. Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, gang.